The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, for the last several weeks in chapter 2, we've been looking very succinctly in some of the very key doctrines of the church. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the importance of unity and how unity is just the vibrant, important area that bonds a church and it's unity in the spirit and unity in what, where the Lord is leading. And then we looked at humility. And we really focused on the idea that when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he didn't come as a royal king. He came in humility. And he served everyone he was around. He served us even to the point of death. The creator dying for the created. And so this morning we move into the same area, but just with a little more clarification. And if you're with me, turn to Philippians 2, verses, begin in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now in Isaiah chapter 14, there are two verses that tell us the thoughts that entered into Satan's mind when he began to look at himself more highly than he should. And it's very important for you and I to grasp these two extremes because if we're totally honest with ourselves, we find ourselves in either one or two categories. But in Isaiah 14, Satan said, and beginning of verse 13, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Every verb and every image in this passage points to Satan's desire to rise above the place that God held. I will ascend above the clouds, above the stars, above the heavens. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will be like the Most High. Satan boasted that he would go up, but the words that follow speak of his true destiny when it says, but you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, contains the New Testament counterpart to Satan's words in Isaiah. These verses are a clear picture of the descent of the Lord Jesus Christ from the highest position in the universe to death on a cross, and then carry the mind of the reader again back up to see him seated in glory at the right hand of the follow, where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess." I will go up, 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 Satan said. You will be cast down to hell, God answered. I will go down to the cross, Jesus said. 
You will be given a name that is above every name, said God, our Heavenly Father. So this passage is among one of the most glorious sections in the New Testament for all of God's people. In these few verses, we see the great sweep of Christ's life from eternity past to eternity future, and we are admitted into the breathtaking purpose of God in salvation. And to think that all of this is for you and me. You know, sometimes we have a hard time wrapping our head around this. We know we're saved. We know we've trusted Christ. We, we understand intellectually and even in our souls. But sometimes in the day-to-day things of life, we would do well to pause and just realize what has been done on our behalf. So what I want us to do here basically, or as we begin, is to look at the old church for a second. The early church, and here's why. <clears throat> These verses are remarkable from the point of view that the early church history viewed things differently than the world today. The Apostle Paul is talking about a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who had lived a generation before in Jerusalem, and he's stating tremendous things about him. Yet he says these things in such a way that we know he is neither inventing doctrines nor arguing for wholly contested positions, but merely presenting what was known and accepted in the early church. Paul teaches these truths as if everyone, and certainly Christians, knew them to be true beyond question. Uh, One commentator on Philippians has said this, quote, So we have a chain of assertions about our Lord Jesus Christ made within uh, some 30 years of his death in Jerusalem, made in the open day of public Christian intercourse, and made not in the least in the manner of controversy or assertion against difficulties and denials, but in the tone of a settled, common, and most living certainty. These assertions give us, on the one hand, the fullest possible assurance that he is man, man in nature, in circumstances, in experience, and particularly in the sphere of relation to God the Father. But they also assure us in precisely the same tone and in the same way, which which is equally vital to the argument in hand, that he is genuinely divine as he is genuinely human. End of quote. So these verses are the literal bedrock of what we believe as Christians. They are the exact bedrock that we hang our faith in about Jesus Christ. They teach the divinity of Christ, the preexistence, his voluntary death on the cross, the certainty of his ultimate triumph over evil, and the preeminence of his reign. There was no evolution of his doctrine. I don't know if you've had the chance on public television sometimes, they run these programs about Paul's writings. And secular scholars get together and they analyze what Paul wrote. And invariably, they talk about his doctrine evolving to where it is today. But the reality is, when you read the verses we just read, right from the very start, there was no evolving in Paul's doctrine. It was as clear and solid then as it is today. And it's based on the reality that Christianity is Christ the Christ of whom we speak. And these things were believed about him from the very beginning. So when you look at back at our verses again, if you look just back again at Philippians 2 verse 5, 
when Paul says, have this mind, okay, he is stating something that's very critical. Have this mind, the mind that was in Christ. Well, what is the mind that was in Christ? Well, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So as you move through every day and you deal with people, Christians and non-Christians alike, and you read the news and you look at what's going on, how often do you take the steps to recommit yourself to humility? To think about the mind that Christ had and to think about Paul stating that let that mind of humility, of sacrifice, of compassion, love, let that mind be in you. Because I think one of the greatest failures in the church today is we don't allow people around us to know our compassion and love. And to be honest with you, this is one of the reasons why I am so big on raising up missionaries from within rather than paying somebody to go by and go do it for us. Because it's easy to pay people to go do the work of humility. But yet the mind of Christ is alive and active in the heart of the true believer, and we want to live that mission. We want to live out loud, if I could put it that way, for the glory of Christ. So look here at the preeminence, the preeminence of Jesus. The first view we have of Jesus in this reference is to his pre-incarnate state. Here is the preeminence. Paul says that before the incarnation, Jesus was in the form of God and was equal with God. Jesus possessed all of the attributes. In other words, he is God. Is God omniscient? So is Jesus. Is God all-powerful? So is Jesus. Is God the creator, the redeemer, the truth, the way, the life, the past, the present, and the future? So is Jesus. Paul's phrase, being in the very nature God, is a deliberate claim of his divinity, and he staked his life on it. So here Paul's words soar to the height of which John uh, magnified him in his prologue. If you recall back when we were studying John a year ago, John chapter 1, he said in in verse 1 through 4, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life, And the life was the light of men. And then later in John chapter 17, when he was praying to the Father, he he made this statement in verse 5, talking about the glory I had with you before the world began. So it is the great preeminence that gives all value to the citation of Christ's life, the ultimate pattern of human sacrifice. So the reality, again, is that this God, this Jesus, who created everything that's in existence, humbled himself, took on human form, came to this earth, healed, 
May the lame walk. May the blind see, forgave, showed mercy, and then took upon him the greatest beating he could possibly take. Why? Because he loves you and I, and he served us even to death. That is the mind of Christ that you and I need to take the time to allow it to penetrate our hearts, to penetrate our minds, to penetrate our very thought process as we live and breathe on this earth. Then notice his condescension. Christ had been above all humans, above all angels, yet he became lower than both out of love for humans and obedience to the Father. Even Paul himself, who had suffered beatings and shipwrecks, tortures and stonings, would never have gone to the depths that Jesus did. For one, he was a Roman and exempt from crucifixion. There was no depth to which Jesus did not go. But when you think of his condescension coming to earth, sometimes I like to just think about what was going on with the angels before Jesus was born. Was there kind of an angel rumor mill where they were trying to say, hey, how is he going to come into earth? How is he going to accomplish this great, great goal that he has? We might speculate that for a time they might have been rumors around heaven Angels contemplating how this was going to work out. Would he appear like a blaze of light bursting into the night's Palestinian countryside, dazzling everybody who beheld him? Perhaps he would appear as a mighty general marching into pagan Rome as Caesar did when he crossed the Rubicon. Or perhaps he would come in the wisest of the Greek philosophers, taking Plato and Socrates to task for their doctrine that was not even close to where he was espousing. But but what's this? He came as a baby, so unassuming, and found himself in the arms of a woman, a mother, in a far eastern colony of the Roman Empire. This was one of the reasons he was rejected, because he didn't come with all the pomp and all the, the flair. He came very humble. In great humility. And at this display of divine condescension, the angels are so amazed that their singing could be heard across the hills of Bethlehem by the shepherds. So he walked for three years among people. He showed us love in spite of hate. When others seek to harm you, answer with love. When others falsely accuse you, forgive. When others live in sin, forgive and show mercy. Just the opposite of the way people lived at that time. Not to hate, not to point out faults, not to rail on people, but to show the love of God and the forgiveness and the great mercy. So we see now turning our thoughts to Christ in glory. Because the final picture we have is of Jesus again on the throne of heaven. Four times in, this, in his ministry, Jesus spoke on the topic, for whoever exalts himself will be humble, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You find it twice in Matthew and twice in Luke. He lived the text. His own life is the greatest example of that people, and it's the great key to your life and my life today. 
And so what we're doing this morning is we're kind of taking a broad look at these verses. In the next couple of weeks, we'll go deeper into each of these topics. But it's almost like a, a climber looking across the valley at the mountain he's about to climb. We'll get that broad stroke, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go in the climb in more detail. But I want you to notice that the first half of each of the clauses in that statement that I mentioned uh, has an active verb. The individual must humble himself rather than exalt himself. The second half of each clause has a passive verb, will be humbled, will be exalted. So the individual is exalted by God, and we find the same thing in our passage in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11. Everything that is said in the first four verses of Philippians uh, 2, 5 through 11, has Jesus himself as the subject. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. He became obedient. Then the second half of the passage in verses 9 through 10, Jesus is the subject. Because it says, or God is the subject rather. It says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So how glorious is this that Jesus will reign and God the Father will see to it. And you can make no mistake about it. But here's the solemn warning. Because these statements embrace all of mankind. You will see him and you will bow down him. Will it be in love and adoration as you fall gratefully, gratefully before him, the one who loved you and died for you? Or will it be by compulsion as you are forced to your knees by the angels moments before you're cast out into everlasting darkness? Matthew eleven twenty eight makes it clear. Come to me, all you who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, the great joy this morning, if you're here and you do not know Christ as your Savior, you, you still have time. This is the age of grace. And God's mercy is being offered freely to all who will come to Him. But then we come to the key area, which is the title of the message this morning. Have this mind. The final item of importance in this way, in this passage, is introduced in the letter of Philippians at this point. It is not an abstract statement of difficult doctrine. It is not all con a controversial selection. It simply is a part of Paul's argument to the heart that all Christians must conduct themselves with the mind of Christ. Paul is not here, as he is elsewhere, combating error in doctrine. Or he is pleading for a life of love. He has a full view of the temptations which threatened to mar the happy, harmonious Christian fellowship in Philippi. And it's the same warning for you and I today. And so we need to take very careful note here. He longed that they should be of one accord, of one mind, and in order that they should esteem each other more highly than themselves. So if you follow along the last several weeks, he's arguing for 
unity. He's arguing for humility, but it only comes through the mind of Christ. And so Paul's great thrust here is for you and I to surrender to that leading of the Spirit so that the Spirit can guide and guard our minds into all truth. So he appeals to them by their common share in Christ. If you belong to Christ, act like Christ. He appeals to them on the Spirit. Allow the Spirit within you to guide and govern your life. And then he appeals to them on their affection for him. You say you're a Christian, then walk like a Christian. So then there is this final plea. The mind that was in Christ Jesus. He left heaven, he came down, and he gave himself. Have you ever stopped to think for a minute what that life would look like in your life? What would it look like for you and I to leave, live each day in humble surrender as Christ did? What would that life look like when we're confronted for people who criticize and get angry, yet we offer humility and love and forgiveness? Here was at once the model and the motive for the Philippian saints, and it is the model and the motive for you and I today. So, if you look around at the world and you see poverty and hunger and sin and have no conviction to serve, you must question your salvation or at the very least your spiritual condition. We are to have the mind of Christ. Now, I can hear some of you thinking, okay, I get it, I see it. But when I wake up on Mondays, I don't have the mind of Christ. When somebody confronts me, I don't have the mind of Christ. How do I get the mind of Christ? Well, I think Romans chapter 8 answers that question very clearly. If you go to Romans chapter 8 and verses 5 through 6, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So what you have here is an active choice of the will to obey Jesus Christ. You either choose to think like the flesh or think like the Spirit. He has provided everything for us. He has given us the Spirit. He has saved us. And now he says, have this mind that was in Christ Jesus. You must choose to surrender and have that mind. Because if you don't, if you live according to the flesh, you set your mind on the things of the flesh, then the flesh is what you want. When somebody angers you, you want your will. When somebody falsely accuses you, you want to defend. Everything about your life revolves around you and yourself. But when you surrender to the Spirit, you mind the things of the Spirit. So when you're prone to act in the flesh, the Spirit of Christ takes over. Verse 6 says, For to set your mind on the things of the flesh is death, but to set your mind on the things of, of the Spirit is life and peace. And who doesn't want peace? True peace only comes through the surrendered life. And so the choice we have is to choose to walk with Christ. 
And that's why in our passage in Philippians 2.5, he says, let this mind be in you. He doesn't say, I will force this mind in you. He doesn't say, you will have this mind in you. He says, let this mind be in you. So when all things are going bad and all fear and anxiety is waiting on you and you're scared about what to do and where you're going, when you choose to let the Spirit take over, that's when Christ works. And that's what Paul is talking about here. The ability to turn everything over to Him so that He can live through you. And that's the great power of the gospel. The gospel doesn't only save you for eternity and then leave you. It cultivates a spirit life within you every single day. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we have ministries to get involved in so that all the things being offered allow you and I to cultivate that mind of Christ within us. So when he says, let this mind be in you, you know exactly what to do. Get on your knees, surrender, and walk according to the Spirit. I know it's not easy. If it was easy, we'd all be on clouds today. But the reality is, and this is why a couple of weeks ago we saw unity, let this mind be in you, all of us, so that together we build up one another in this goal. So when you're down, someone comes alongside and lifts you. When someone else is down, you come alongside and lift them. And that is the spirit that Paul is teaching this church in Philippians, to work together in wonderful unity. Nothing short of the mind of the head must be the mind of the member. Then the glory of the head shall be the glory of the member. Do you see that Christianity is not just a theory, not just a nice principle to live by? It's just not nice cliches to print on a coffee cup or a t-shirt and wear out and say, hey, it is very life. It is the actual life of the believer. It is how they live and breathe. It's what coerces through their veins. It's what sets them apart from everyone else. And this passage is charged to the brim with doctrines of personal, uh, the personal nature of Christ. And why? It is in order that Christians tempted to self-asserting life may look upon the things of others and allow Christ to live through them. That's the power of the gospel. Without the facts, which are sound doctrine, Paul's appeal would have very little ground to it. Nothing in Christianity lies outside of him. His person, his work, embodies all the dogmatic teachings of the scriptures. Christianity is Christ. We're to have the mind of Christ. That is the power this morning that he's talking about. And if all of us could understand that and just rest on what he's teaching and allow the scriptures to live through us, just think of how your situations could turn into positive situations. Think of how the struggles you're going through could be turned into a glorious victory. Think of how others around you would look at you and see your testimony, not just in words, but how you live and breathe and how you conduct your lives. Think of the tremendous power that we would have all around us. That's what Paul is seeking in this passage. And that is the glory of the gospel. So let this mind 
be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. A mind of sacrifice, a mind of humility, and a mind of love, lifting others up above yourselves. That is the true power of the Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for what you've done and how you're working in the hearts and lives of each one of us. I pray, Lord, that especially any here this morning who are struggling with with difficult things in life, may they look through them through the prism of your heart and your spirit. May they learn that the mind that you want us to have is a mind of victory. It's a mind of grace and mercy. And even in the darkest hours, your spirit will lead us to the truth. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us not to live life our own way, not to look at things it through our own glasses, the things that cause us to see the negative and the what-ifs and suppose this happens, what about that? But through the heart that is so surrendered to your spirit that they see nothing but the glory of God. And whatever you choose to do in our heart and lives would bring honor and glory to you. And that's what we live for, to bring glory to you. We trust you this morning in all things and give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. God bless.